Hashem Hashem Nasev and Atzliach, Shul Torah, Bukhim Abayim. We're back here on our Stump the Rabbi series, where after a little bit of Divrei Torah, you guys will ask questions, and Bezat Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give us the answers. Uh, tonight's Shul uh, is going to be an exciting one. It's going to be a lot of interesting things about the weekly parasha, about what's going on in the world today. Uh, it's uh, also a uh, sad day where uh, today the uh, Arab terrorists uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, murdered and injured many Jews in Eretz Israel. Uh, in fact, it was right around the corner of uh, Rabbi Ephraim's uh, uh, house. It's actually a place where we did a shiur, uh, where they, uh, these terrorists uh, had a coordinated uh, bomb attack, uh, you know, bombing buses, uh, because quite frankly, the only thing they know uh, is uh, to murder. So uh, that's unfortunately what they did. We actually uh, have uh, some uh, family that knows the, uh, the boy, 15-year-old boy, that uh, was murdered by these vicious animals, Imach Shimam Vizichram, and also injured uh, almost uh, 20 uh, other holy Jews. So Bezat Hashem, this uh, shiur will be for the new Yishmat of the precious Neshamot that uh, left this world today uh, from Am Yisrael, and... Uh, Certainly for the refuah shlema and recovery uh, for all of the Jewish people that were uh, injured in this attack. Uh, and also for the refuah shlema for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sara Bat Anat, Avi Mori David Ben Esriya, Imi Moati Doris Bat Zora, and also for the Atzlachar of Marsa Bat Julie, and all of our children, and all of Am Yisrael, and all the righteous Noahides. Uh, we are uh, only a few days away uh, from uh, the release of the uh, third and final um, trailer for the new movie, the Gano movie, Baruch Hashem. We have a lot of great feedback from different people that are interested in this movie. The last trailer is going to be the uh, longest one. Uh, it's about five minutes. Uh, and uh, certainly it's going to pique your interest. Also, for any of you that want to contribute uh, to become partners in this movie to whatever capacity you want, whether big or small, there's a literally a chance of a lifetime to be part of it uh, so much so that a person could actually uh, have their name added to the credits uh, or even the introduction of the film uh, you just go to the uh, campaign website genom.com uh, that's uh, g-e-h-i-n-n-o-m.com and there's an explanation over there of what's available uh, so this is something that uh, everybody should do uh, because it's uh, these are schuyot, these are merits that a person is not going to be able to get in any other way. Uh, as many as uh, projects as we have, and as many as there are uh, other organizations that do uh, amazing projects and, and, and good things out there, this is something that's unlike any other. Uh, so the, uh, the, ch- the door is closing in a few days, uh, but anyone that wants to get involved is more than welcome to. Uh, Last but not least, you know, right now we are not only in a um, in a physical war with Ishmael um, and I uh, but we're also in a spiritual war with Ishmael, Uh, just like we've been in a spiritual war against Esav, uh, you know, for 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 many years now where the, uh, you know, the, the, the missionaries, the Christian missionaries are attacking Am Yisrael and unfortunately uh, succeeding at times uh, to uh, convert Jews to Christianity, according to a statistic, uh, they uh, they converted nearly a half a million Jews over the last few decades. 
the last three decades or so. Uh, so uh, the, the Christians, unfortunately, uh, you know, already stole uh, quite a few precious neshamot. And, uh, and for, as I told you guys a few years ago, the, uh, the uh, uh, Muslim dawah, uh, that is in essence their version of missionizing, uh, is also now targeting the Jewish people alongside with everybody else uh, and at times succeeding at least confusing people. Uh, so it, it, more than ever uh, is a Jew really uh, uh, responsible to have knowledge of uh, what Torah really is and what it's not because that's really the only thing that's going to help you uh, when people try to create confusion. And this is one of the things we're going to learn from this week's parasha. We're going to learn a little bit about Yaakov's Torah uh, versus the, uh, the the teachings of Ishmael and uh, and and Esav. So our weekly parasha, Parasha Toldot, is uh, certainly full of endless insights that uh, that we can go into. We've covered in the past, and Baruch Hashem. Uh, we'll, we'll cover today and Bezal Hashem will cover in the future. One of the things that we learn early in the parasha is a very uh, um, uh, interesting uh, teaching that could literally fix every single marriage out there if you would listen to it. And we're not going to go too deep into it because there's a lot of material. But um, the, uh, in the beginning of the parasha, we learned that Rivka, the holy Rivka, is also barren just like all of the other matriarchs. Uh, they're, they're all barren. The Gemara says because Hashem made them barren because He wanted their prayer. Prayer for a miracle. But uh, unlike anything else we've seen thus far, we see that Rivka prays in a very different way, in a way that teaches us a, uh, a tool that uh, every couple can use in order to improve their marriage exponentially. Uh, and that is, it says that Yitzchak... Uh, prayed before Hashem opposite his wife because she was barren and they, they decided they desired to have children and Hashem accepted his prayer and his wife Rivka received twins so we see from here that both Rivka and Yitzchak prayed together he was on one side she was on the other side you have financial issues health issues whatever issues there are you need to pray together now of course in order for you to have that uh, that uh, interest and even more so that inclination to do so it's even more important for a couple to learn Torah together because if a couple learns Torah together every day instead of wasting their time watching TV or uh, playing on their phone or talking about other people if they simply watch even if it's only 15 or 20 minutes of Torah together uh, this is something that uh, can improve the marriage you know in, in a way unlike anything else because it's a unification of the souls. It's a unification of the neshamot, of the couple, that uh, brings their ideology together as well as their souls themselves together. Uh, that's something that can improve the marriage in a very, very big way. So here we see that the results that uh, Rivka and Yitzchak uh, got from praying together were obviously amazing. And certainly this is something that we can learn from and we can apply to our lives. After this, the Torah goes into the, uh, the birth of the two sons. You have Yaakov, you have uh, uh, Esav. And uh, initially, it's a, uh, the Gemara says that uh, when Esav and uh, Yitzchak were teenagers, were young kids, 
they looked exactly like they both look like yeshiva bachurim they both looked from they uh they both looked the part that they're coming from a good yichus a good family uh you know of course their father is the gdolador itzhak the grandfather is avram the gdolador uh so these young kids they look exactly the same their voices are the same but then as they start growing up even further things start to change a sav forms into what the Torah calls a uh, a skillful hunter a skillful hunter now the uh this means uh the literal term which skillful hunter uh he was uh more into hunting and killing uh than uh and, and physicality than anything else but even more so the uh the Chachamim teach us that uh Esav literally became a bigger and bigger criminal uh as he aged where at this uh stage the uh Esav uh was uh, uh put a tattoo of a snake on his thigh uh and really the skillful hunting is not referring to his hunting of uh, uh of animals but rather of hunting married women of raping women of uh, of killing people and also fooling his own father Yitzchak to think that he's righteous to think that he's righteous by asking uh questions that have to do with Torah to make it seem as if he's studying to make it seem as if he's pious but as soon as he leaves the house he's back to being a criminal with a tattoo on his leg of a snake and the uh and the knives and the murder and the rape and everything else out there very similar to unfortunately the worry of the world today where you have people pretending to be pious but as soon as they have the opportunity they become their real version of the murderers that they are so this is one thing that we already learn about uh Esav and then later on we uh we see uh the uh the Esav grow even further when it comes to after he comes back from the hunt and he sees that Yaakov is cooking now all of us have heard the story where Yaakov is making this stew and then Esav wants this stew so bad that he's willing to give his firstborn uh, uh rights uh his Bechorah in Hebrew uh and uh, and they in essence make the trade but there's a lot more to it than just simply that uh the uh, the Bechorah is what represented the spirituality what represented the spirituality because the Bechorah in Judaism had a significance since the time of Adam Arishon the the firstborn initially until Mount Sinai the firstborn were actually the the Kohen Gadol they were the Kohanim uh they were the ones that would do uh would, would bring the sacrifices to God they were the ones that would get a larger in- inheritance in essence they were the holy ones so when when uh Esav says you know uh I'll give you this Bechorah just give me this red stuff and that's the reason why he's called Edom because Edom comes from the uh the word uh, uh similar to the word uh, for Adom which is red uh we learn something deeper there which is why would you call Esav Edom the nation of Edom uh just because he had a, a red stew it's because the essence of Esav was materialism the essence of Esav was this red stew was this physicality so he cared less about spirituality that's the reason why he was willing to simply give his Bechorah give his spiritual status to Yaakov simply to get some type of physical pleasure even more so than that 
we uh, we learn from here the ways of the wicked where Esav says that look I'm gonna die uh, so what use is this Bechora for me and the uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 22 verse 13 says the wicked people are saying let us eat and drink because tomorrow we will die this is the uh, attitude of the wicked in today's language uh, people say you only live once that's the same type of uh mentality that's the same thing that's in essence modernizing of the torah verse that says eat and drink because tomorrow we're gonna die what is that attitude that attitude is enjoy your physical uh, uh, uh enjoyment as much as possible today because who knows what you have tomorrow that means if you want to commit adultery that means if you want to steal that means if you want to cheat that means if you want to lie whatever it is that's going to give you fun today that's all you should be focused on don't worry about tomorrow and needless to say don't worry about the future this is the way of the wicked this is what the satan the yitzhara tries to convince every young man and woman to do forget about the future just have a good time with him today just have a good time with her tomorrow and little do they know that that one particular act is literally going to transform the rest of their lives in this world and for eternity just because of that one act as we learned in last night's you from Rav Pinkos that the uh the small acts of today of if here make a huge implication of what happens in the upper worlds so it's just like when somebody pulls a little rope at the bottom of the bell tower and makes the uh, the big sound at the top of the tower. Uh, it's the same concept with this. This is the attitude of the wicked, where they don't think that the rope is going to do anything. They don't think that little button uh that's connected to an atomic bomb is going to do anything they don't think that uh ignoring the torah is going to do anything they think that let me just enjoy today this type of attitude was the attitude of asav now after this uh uh desecration of the spiritual status that god gave to asav akadosh Baruch Hu decided to allow this transaction to go through uh, because Esav disrespected it, he spurned this Bechora, and therefore the uh, the uh, transaction is allahically permitted. Allahically permitted. Now, the uh, later on we see that Akadosh Baruch Hu speaks to Yitzchak, their father, and he tells Yitzchak that uh, he's going to bless him increase his offspring and give him all of these wonderful things why i will do this because of avraham heeded my word and observed the safeguard established by my word my commandments my edicts and my torahs plural so here we see that akadosh baruch Hu is outright telling us that there was a torahs plural before mount sinai now of course we've always known that the oral Torah was here since the time of a uh, uh, of Adam Arishon, but at the same token, the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin actually says that this is also referring to the Noahide laws. The Noahide laws, the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page fifty-seven B, goes to a very similar verse where Hashem talks about how uh, Avraham uh, observed this Torahs uh, in. Um, earlier part of the uh of the torah in chapter 18 verse 19 
very similar uh, verse to what we have here and he says this is referring to that particular uh, a verse was uh, to teach us that Hashem gave the Noahide laws to mankind already from the beginning and one of the proofs of it is this verse and even more so another proof of it because he's a just God he wouldn't punish the entire world he wouldn't punish Sodom and Gomorrah for homosexuality and promiscuity and stealing he wouldn't punish the generation of Noah uh, with a complete annihilation for homosexuality for for the abomination and idolatry that they did he wouldn't punish anybody unless they knew the law so here we see this the Gemara says that there are many verses in the Torah in Sefer Bereshit and other places that showed that God gave the oral Torah to mankind and the parts for the uh, Gentiles words the uh, seven Noahide laws and one of them that uh, we learned from here is that the women are also obligated in these laws not just the men specifically the laws of the, of Noah in regards to uh, we're talking about the Gentiles the laws of Noah where the women are obligated to uh, have a justice system just like the men are obligated to have a justice system so here we see that the uh the uh, the way that jews learn torah is not just by reading stories this is not a storybook but rather by looking and delving into each and every single word and seeing what our sages said how they extrapolated each and every word and connected it to our entire masoit our entire tradition to see what everything means later on in the parasha we move forward we see uh the uh the, the story in the uh of uh, of Yitzhak becoming more and more similar to his father where he has this problem with Avimelech uh taking his wife obviously finding out shortly after that his wife is real is uh, his wife is not his sister it's really his wife uh and um giving her back but uh one of the interesting things is we see that after Avimelech sees that Yitzchak is succeeding he kicks him out he says it's a uh, it's embarrassing that you are more rich than the king you're more you're richer than me but then after they see that Yitzchak continues to uh to succeed they come back to him on them it says in Proverbs chapter 16 verse 7 when Hashem is happy with somebody with the righteous person even his enemies will come back and apologize just like Avimelech did but Avimelech didn't have the uh the 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 pious status to apologize like a normal person rather he came back and said we want to be friends we want to have peace with you and just make sure you don't do evil to us because we've never done anything evil to you on this the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says in Adam a person does not see the obligation himself this Avimelech doesn't remember that he's the one that actually caused evil to uh Yitzchak he's the one that kicked him out he's the one that caused tension between the two not Yitzchak he is uh having Yitzchak swear to him that he's not going to do any evil to him as if Yitzchak has any history of doing evil he doesn't realize that the all the evil came from Avimelech himself but that's the nature of the wicked that's the uh nature of wicked people back then and the nature of people hasn't changed till this day 
After this section, we go and we uh, see that the Torah does something very interesting, which is, it tells us that Esav is 40 years old and he gets married to two women. He gets married to Yehudit and he gets uh, uh, married to Basmat. And then right after that, it goes into the story of the blessing debacle where Esav thinks that he's the one that's going to get the blessing from Yitzchak. That was the plan. He, he goes out there to get some food for to hunt some uh, game for his father as per his request, thinking he's going to get the blessing. That's an eternal blessing. That's a huge blessing. Uh, and uh, he doesn't really care about his father when he sees that he's not succeeding in, in, in catching any deer. He simply kills uh, both of his hunting dogs and he cooks them because he doesn't care about his father he cares about the blessing and we even see it in the verses later on when he serves the dish to his father he yells at him says get up and eat meaning he doesn't say it like uh, Yaakov which you also see in the verses where Yaakov says please father it's me you know it's a, a whole build-up to eventually asking him if father would rise and uh, be more comfortable to eat Isav, when he talks to his father Yitzchak, is abrupt, obnoxious, and uh, and simply an insane person. But Yitzchak still sees only the righteousness in him. He sees the good in him because he asked him, you know, all types of Torah questions like, you know, if I have salt, do I still need to give maaser on it? Just like I give on money just like I give on the uh, cattle, just like I give on everything else, I still, should I give to the yeshiva of Shem and Ever? I should give them 10% of my salt? I should give them 10%? Meaning he's asking questions, which of course you don't have to give 10% of the salt, but Esav was such a con man that he would use anything he possibly can to try to overcompensate, which is the way of Esav. This is the reason why the verse in uh, this parasha, in chapter 27, it says, The voice is the voice of Yaakov, and the hands are the hands of Esav. Literally, actually referring to the uh, physical, uh, uh, the act that happened, which is that it was a uh, Yaakov speaking to his father, Yitzchak, but he was wearing a uh, the uh, uh, the skin of the, uh, of the animals that he slaughtered in preparation to make his uh, body. Uh, seem more hairy but the sages teach us the holy jewish sages teach us that this has a much deeper meaning which is that the wicked people the deceivers the esav the ishmael they're going to sound like yaakov they're going to sound righteous but in reality if you give it enough time if you double check what they say you'll eventually realize they're esav they're ishmael it's still the same. They just sound like Yaakov. They sound righteous sometimes. They sound like they make sense. They sound like they care about you. They sound like they want the better good. But in reality, you'll see, it's nothing like that. Why? Anyone that is not following the Torah has no concept of what good is. Simply no concept. Because good could only be defined by the creator of good. And the creator of good gave us the definition and the instructions to be good through his Torah and nothing else, not the Quran and not the New Testament. But of course, even righteous people can get fooled. And we actually see this 
actually happening in our parasha and this is the part we're going to spend the rest of the segment on which is the teachings of ishmael the teachings of esav how can they fool people first we have to start with how did esav fool itzhak itzhak is righteous itzhak has Ruach HaKodesh. itzhak is a prophet but you should know that prophecy and Ruach HaKodesh is not a all day 24 hours a day thing it happens when god wants it to happen so here akadosh Baruch Hu did not want it to happen did not want it to happen and allow this to happen the way it does, the way it did but how did uh Yitzhak not know his son how did he get fooled like i said the first thing is that every time esav would see his father he would pretend to be righteous he would say things but even more so we actually learned in this week's parasha that there is a reason why every verse is where it is and we also learned that there's a reason why god decided to put the couple of verses that talk about how esav at 40 years old decided to get married to these two women right before it talks about the blessing what you know i mean technically if you look at this verse where it's in a chapter 26 verse 34 and 35 it really seems out of place it has nothing to do with what happens right after which is the blessing debacle and it has nothing to do with what happened before so you're trying to figure out why do i need to know that asav got married at 40 years old to these two women now if you want to mention it just mention it at the end of the parasha just like it mentions that Esav married a third woman Ishmael's daughter so let's just find out from there what do I need to know now about these two women so this is what we have to learn Esav married these two women and we see that these women are named Yehudit and Basmat. So the first thing that a person can rationalize is that if he was the only one that's married, it's only rational for his father, Yitzhak, to want to give him the blessing over his brother who's not married. This is rational. He's married he has more need for a blessing rather than a single man that doesn't have any responsibilities at this point so that's the rational aspect of it but of course we don't work off of rationality we work off of verses in the Torah to support our rationale and Baruch Hashem we found some friends to support it so here we see that there is names being mentioned of women but if we look further in the Torah and we move forward to chapter 36 verse number 2 from 26 so we're moving forward 10 chapters to a completely different parasha parashat Vayishlach. Torah tells us that Esav had a lineage this is the history of Esav these are the offering of Esav what are they Esav had taken his wives among the Canaanite women, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aolibama, daughter of Anna, 
daughter of Zebeon, the Hivite, and Basmat, the daughter of Ishmael, sister of Navayot. So anyone that looks at the two here says, wait a minute, there's a contradiction. Here it says, in our verse, in our parasha, it says that Basmat is, is married to Elon. Whereas in chapter 26, Basmat is not the daughter of Elon. She's the daughter of Ishmael. What, did she, she changed father? Even more so, we don't see Yehudit. Yehudit, the daughter of Beiri. She's not here. And then Machla, which is the woman that he married, it's the daughter of Ishmael, at the end of this week's parasha, she's not mentioned here. We're mentioning Basmat. So what, is there a contradiction? Now, of course, if you go to the Christians, if you go to the Arabs, they're going to tell you, oh, you see, I told you there's mistakes in the Torah. Da, I believe in the revelation, but I just don't believe that that revelation is in the Torah that the Jewish people have. We believe in the Quran, we believe in the New Testament, we believe in the Shtuyot, we believe in everything else. We don't believe the people of the book. Even though our own books say to believe the people of the book. The Quran says, believe the people of the book, the Jewish people. If you find mistakes in the Quran, if you don't know what to do, go to the Jewish people. Same with the New Testament. The New Testament itself says, if you any have any any issues, any go to the people of the book, go to the people of Moshe Rabbeinu and his Torah. That's where the truth is. Their own books say to go to us, but the people of today are so ignorant of their own teachings that apparently we know more about their teachings than they know but needless to say we don't need to know their teachings we need to know our teachings is this a contradiction or not is this a mistake in the torah or not now of course if you're a christian or you're a muslim you read the torah literally you take it at face value and already after just a few weeks into the year you found the mistake you simply can't learn anymore why there's a mistake so it's not divine now if you are a jew you don't learn torah literally you learn torah based on what the interpretation of everything is which has support from other verses from other books from other teachings from from other parts of the torah now one of the things that we see here is already at our parasha we learn something extraordinary. Not only will you never find any mistakes in the Torah, but everything has an explanation that's very clear. Esav was 40 years old, and he married Yehudit, the daughter of Be'iri the Chittite. And then he married the Basmat, the daughter of Elon, the Ramban, 800 years ago approximately 750 years ago before he gives even his own opinion he tells you what rashi said this is how our sages treat each other they respect each other's opinions they take it they even if they have a contradicting opinion or they disagree on something they honor unlike the teachers of today in the uh in the uh, other religions and unfortunately sometimes among ourselves where people disregard 
the uh, the, uh, the 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 sages of the past our sages the way they look at everything they tell you this is what the uh, is accepted opinion so Rashi says and we don't understand a single verse in the Torah without Rashi that these names Basmat Yehudit they're fake they're not real names what does it mean not real names this is the way that Esav fooled his father Yitzchak by taking on a girl named Basmat calling her Basmat really she was Ada her name was Ada the daughter of alone the same name that it says in chapter 36 but he called her Basmat why he says look she uh she does uh the uh incense offering to God in reality she did incense offering to our idol but he wanted his father Yitzhak to make to think that the incense offering that she's doing is for God she's righteous and even more so the other girl our uh, uh Yehudit, her real name was Aulibama like Osama bin Laden like Obama uh, you know like this Aulibama Aulibama was mentioned in chapter 36 but in this week's parasha she's named Yehudit why Yehudit because the wicked one Esav nicknamed her Yehudit as if to say she rejected idolatry she became part of our people Yehudia in order to deceive his father Yitzchak he called her Yehudit but in reality she was an idol worshiper and what's the uh, proof they were both idol worshipers the very next verse in the Torah says that these wives were rebellious and provocative in their actions against the word of Yitzchak and Rivka. So from here we see that if you look at things in the Torah at face value, like the illiterates, like the spiritually illiterate and sometimes otherwise, idolaters and so on, what you're going to end up with is confusion, is, is what seems like contradictions, and it's very, very simple for you to lose hope, to lose faith. But if you learn Torah, the Torah of Yaakov, you learn Torah, the Torah of Am Yisrael, you have to look at things much more deeply and not fall for the traps of the wicked deceivers. Because the deceivers, their number one job, their number one mission in the world is to fool you. But they're not going to fool you with, by saying, listen, you know, there's no such thing as Abraham. There's no such thing as Yaakov. There's no such thing as Moses. They're not going to do that. They're going to tell you, yeah, we believe in Moses. We call him Musa. We believe he's Moses. We believe in Abraham. He's also our father. Yeah, we believe in Yaakov. We believe in Yitzchak. We believe. We believe in God. We're the same God. We're cousins. It's just that your people changed the Torah. And we have... The real version we have the Quran and the same concept with the Christians with their nonsense so what are they gonna do how do they do this they do this with a pleasant voice the voice of Yaakov but in reality it's the hands of Esav now this week one a uh, student of mine about Shuvah Baruch Hashem sent me a clip of some Arab sheikh that is uh, targeting Jews 
And of course, just like the Christians, they always target the ignorant, unlearned Jews, the ones that more or less do not observe Shabbat or learn Torah on a regular basis. And they make a video about it. Because in the eyes of the Muslims, in the eyes of the Christians, one Jew is worth a billion of their own people. So they'll celebrate fooling one Jew, converting one Jew, and literally destroying one Jew's eternity. They'll celebrate that for the rest of their life, even if the rest of their life is full of failure with their own communities. So this Arab sheikh, what did he do? He made a little short clip that confused my student. Where he says to a Jewish man that comes to him, sounds confident and a jewish man that's not doesn't look jewish but you know doesn't have a keeper or anything he's not a yeshiva bachu or anything but he comes to him and he says to the arab sheikh but you believe in the torah right so the sheikh says to him nice and calmly yes i believe in a divine revelation but i just don't believe that that divine revelation is in what you call torah the jewish people changed it oh why why, why do you think that Oh, there are contradictions, obvious contradictions, numerical contradictions, he tells him. So, of course, this guy doesn't even have a clue of what's about to hit him in the face, this Jewish guy, because the Arab is prepared, or at least he thinks he is, and he says, you want me to show you? You know, trying to be, like, friendly and open. Yeah, you know, listen... You're not my target. I'm not like looking to do anything. I'm here to educate. I'm here to, you know, enlighten. But if you want, I'll even help you. I'll show you where there's contradictions in your own Torah. So, of course, the ignorant Jew says, okay, sure, go ahead. And he says, look, you have a Torah. And your Torah says in the book of Kings 2, chapter 8, verse 25, that Ahaziah became king of Judah at the 12th year and when he was 22 years old 22 years old he was in jerusalem his mother was atalia the granddaughter of omri but then if you go to a different part of your torah same torah and of course he's looking this this arab is looking at it at a christian king james bible he's not looking at the torah but anyway For all intents and purposes, in this particular uh, conversation, it doesn't actually matter. Now, he says in a different part of Torah, in Chronicles 2, chapter 22, it mentions the same thing. Only one small difference. It says Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king and he reigned for one year in Jerusalem. His mother was Atalia, the granddaughter of Omri. He says, you see, it's the same Ahaziah. It's, he became king in Jerusalem. Same mother. So you can't tell me it's a different Ahaziah. Because she has the same uh, father. The, uh, she's the granddaughter of Omri. So how could he become king at 22 and 42? So you see, I have tons of this, he says. Mistake. Mistake. 20 year difference. 42 and 22. Obviously it's a mistake in your Torah. If there's one mistake in the Torah, it's not divine. So of course the poor Jew 
has no idea what to do and they make a mockery out of this and they're having a good time so now my students send this to me generally speaking I love to debate I did it as part of my business for almost 20 years but I don't do it in the religious world for several reasons which I have a whole sure about why I don't debate and generally speaking because I don't debate I don't usually address these types of people because I know that to help them is impossible because they're not looking to be helped but here I knew it has nothing to do with helping the Arab it has to do with my student and anybody else that's watching this stupid video by the Arab that's distorting our Torah that's who I need to help so it took some time I made a short video to respond to it anyone that saw it praiseworthy anyone that didn't will have the same exact answer here you see if you're an Arab or a Christian as I said and will repeat a million and a half times you read the Torah literally you read the Torah at face value you read whatever you see and you make a whole big deal out of one sentence if you're a Jew if you're Yaakov you don't do any of that stuff why you read the whole book and everything else that's connected to it because that's the only way that you can be sure that you are aware and familiar with the world around every verse not just that one verse and had that Jew needless to say had the Arab had a little bit a little bit of sechel, they would have said hold on a second you're saying that chapter 22 second verse talks about Achazia, 42 years old what does it say before what does it say after because obviously the story of Achazia didn't just start here out of nowhere there has to be something that led up to it and if he just simply went back two verses to the end of chapter 21 instead of being at chapter 22 at the beginning the end of chapter 21 he would have found the answer where the end of chapter 21 and verse 20 it talks about the father of Achazia and it says the father of Achazia Yochaz he uh it says earlier that he um he got sick he had an intestinal disease that was incurable he got punished by God and the, and the last verse says that he was 32 years old when he became king and he ruled for eight years in Jerusalem and he departed without enjoyment meaning he died and they buried him in the city of David but not in the graves of the kings so here we already learned a whole lot of stuff number one Ahaz that was 42 and 22 has a father Baruch Hashem his name is Yochaz Baruch Hashem his father had an intestinal disease which is the way he died when did he die at 40 years old how long was he king eight years 
40 minus 32. He became king at 32. Died at 40. That's eight years. So now in the Jewish world, if you die at 40 as a king, it is impossible for you to have a son that's 42. Maybe if you're Arab, maybe if you're something else, but a Jew, we don't do math that way. We cannot be 40 years old with a 42-year-old son. So obviously, if he died at 40 years old, his son took over to be king when he died. And in fact, if you look at chapter 21, it also says that his son Ahaz was not even his oldest son. It was his youngest son. Meaning that there were sons that were older, but they ended up dying. And the only one that was left at the time of Yehoshaz's death was Ahaz. Ahaziah. So, how do you rectify all of this? So you already know that if his father died at 40, the statement that says that Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king obviously cannot be taken at face value. Whereas the statement of him being 22 that's mentioned in chapter uh, 8, verse 25 in Kings 2, that could be taken at face value. Why? It's perfectly normal for a 40-year-old to have a 20-year-old, 22-year-old kid. That makes sense. So how do we rectify the 42? What do we do with that? Is that a contradiction? Is that a mistake? Only in the Arab world. Only in the Christian world. I don't know how to learn Torah. But the Jewish world, we look at the entire sentence. We see that God made sure that every word is placed there carefully for a reason. And in there it specifically says that his mother was Atalia, the granddaughter of Omri. Why do I care about his grandfather? Why do I need to know that Ahaziah's grandfather was Omri? Why? For what? That's because King Asa was Ahaziah's great-grandfather married the son of Yoshafat to the daughter of King Omri and combined the family of King David which were righteous with the wicked people of Omri and because of that they both got punished meaning his father died at a young age he himself only led as a king for a short period of time the entire family was cursed because they combined the righteous and the wicked and thereby everybody became became wicked when did this happen 42 years before he became king meaning that the first time in kings 2 where it says that Ahaziah became king at 22 that's when it's referring to his real age the second time it says when he's 42 it's because it's referring to a time frame this kinghood is connected 
to what happened 42 years ago. So you see, Rabotai Karim, if a person allows themselves enough time to learn Torah from the Jewish people, from the sages that have toiled and toiled over every single verse and have support and evidence for every single thing that's in the Torah, you will find an answer for every question humanly possible. You'll never find something you don't have an answer for. You'll never find something there's no explanation for that could affect your life. You will have all of the issues you can possibly imagine addressed in the Holy Torah. But if you go out there and you go listen to Esav or Ishmael, then what you're going to end up with are people that are looking to deceive you because they have an agenda. Just like Esav had an agenda, just like Ishmael had an agenda, but they're not going to tell you they have an agenda. Because to you, they're going to sound like Yaakov. And that's why our weekly parasha says, Akol kol Yaakov v'yadayim yedei Esav. The voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are the hands of Esav. If you learn Torah from Esav, even if he sounds good and he's a good speaker and he's exciting and he's uh, this and he's uh, that, remember, he's still Esav. It's forbidden to learn Torah from him. It's forbidden to believe anything they say. The same goes for Ishmael. The only place that you can rely on are true Torah Jews. Jews that learn Torah honestly with the tradition at hand, with the Masoret, with the explanation, with the sources, and without an agenda. We have the answers. You just have to ask. Very simple. Baruch Hashem, this allows us to not only address different interesting issues within the weekly parasha, but also take some of these tools to deal with some of these problems that are out there in the world today. You have the Christians missionizing at the highest level in history. In the past, when they tried to convert the Jews to Christianity and the Jews refused, they simply murdered us by the millions. Today, they're not murdering us physically, at least not for the last 75 years, but spiritually, they're looking to murder us left and right. The missionizing by the Christians is not going to stop anytime soon. The Muslims, on the other hand, Ishmael, their dawah is no longer just focused on the Christians and the atheists. It's also focused on the ignorant Jews. It's also focused on the naive Jews. They target Jewish women in Eretz Israel with money, with all types of luxury, with all types of false hope, just to bring them back to their villages and rape them and pretend like they're married to them, only to literally tie them with chains to the uh, refrigerator and never allow them to leave again. Many Palestinian terrorists don't realize that their mother is Jewish. They're brought up to hate their own brothers because they don't realize that their mother is actually Jewish. 60,000 Jewish girls have been captured by these Muslim terrorists. 60,000. We're talking about big numbers here for Am Yisrael. 
We're not China and we're not America. We don't have hundreds of millions of people. 60,000 girls for us is an enormous number. They're doing this to the girls. They're doing this to the boys. In America, the fastest growing religion is Islam. They've normalized it and beautified it to the point where your average American is becoming more inclined to adapt it, to fall into it. And in fact, many of the black guys and girls in America that are part of this Hebrew-Israelite movement are now feeling empowered by joining Islam, where they're either going to call themselves the real Jews, and the real Jews of today that are Torah observant, they call us the fake Jews, because they're black and we're not, even though there are plenty of black Jews, but apparently they're not aware of this, and Judaism is not determined by skin color, and never was and never will be, nor is it determined by DNA, never was and never will be, but nonetheless, these black people think that their color is so significant that it determines their, uh, their, uh, their heritage, their lineage, and many of them are actually going to Islam. Some of them are staying with Christianity, some are going to Islam 100%, some have a mix of both. Literally, they have a mix of both. It's, it's, the, it's the same mishmash of craziness, but it's empowering a lot of people that are looking for attention, looking for a position of power, and they're making movies, and they're making videos, and they're making protests, and they're making a lot of noise. This has already been going on for several years. There was a movie that came out a couple years ago that made a lot of noise, and a lot of black people went after it and followed the Hebrew-Israelite movement, slowly but surely becoming more and more anti-Semitic. Then the idiot Kanye West put even more fuel on the fire with his idiocy and his anti-Semitism and his ignorance, even though what he said wasn't necessarily as bad as what some people make it seem to be. Still, nonetheless, in the eyes of people, especially the ones that are already have the Jews on their target and on their uh, radar, he magnified the fire. So now you have a bunch of these so-called Hebrew Israelites these Muslims and these Christians making all types of videos and lectures and debates specifically targeting the Jewish people and our Torah and distorting the reality, distorting the facts. And worse yet, they're not receiving much of a response. The Jewish world remains quiet. One of the reasons is because the common belief is that if we address them, if we respond to them, perhaps it'll make them angrier and more violent. This is a flawed logic. We've seen it time and time again fail, where when we don't respond, when we don't defend our Torah, we don't defend ourselves, it doesn't help us. It doesn't help us in any way. In fact, especially with people that are hot-tempered and people that are looking for, an, for attention, like these Hebrew Israelites, not, uh, not responding to them 
actually fuels their fire even more because from their warped logic they think that because we don't respond we don't have a response and therefore that gives them even more empowerment in their eyes that they're right that they really are jews initially they just figured listen i'm african-american my ancestors were slaves this that even though that has nothing to do with me hundreds of years have already passed my favorite uh thing to do is play basketball football or i want to trade in the stock market or i want to be a doctor i live in america none of the slavery actually really affects me but nonetheless i'll play that slavery card because sometimes it helps me get some uh, people to say uh to say nice things to me get accepted in schools in jobs and so on and so forth so you know this is the the uh the uh the black guy before the hebrew israelites once the hebrew israelites capture this guy he's in their uh, radar they get him on all of a sudden he's no longer a victim he's no longer a victim no now he's the leader now the jews are the uh the the slaves the jews are the uh the enemy how just 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 a few days ago you were saying that you are persecuted you can't get the right job you can't get the right school you can't get the right this you can't get the right that and and and, and now you're the empowered one you're this what happened what just because you had a conversation you saw a video on youtube what happened why because you put that funny clothes on that you got from some costume store what, what's the what, what, how did you change from this to this the truth is all of this comes from ignorance ignorance of the jews and the gentiles alike now the jews are obligated to know their torah the gentiles are obligated to know their version of the torah which is the noahide laws of course many of them don't even know that exists but the point being is that the only defense that a jew will have in the spiritual war that's today against the missionaries of christianity or the missionaries of islam or the mixed mash of the hebrew israelites half muslim half uh, christian craziness the only way is if the jew has knowledge of the truth knowing enough of the torah to know how to deal with these issues takes time takes time so you can't get that time tomorrow but what you do need to get and what you do need to get to, to have already right now is enough confidence in our Torah and enough humility in your knowledge where you know that if somebody shows you something that contradicts our Torah something that you don't understand you simply say listen I don't understand I have to look into it and even if they say all types of pressuring uh, statements to you saying ah what you don't know your own Torah you call yourself a Jew you don't have an obligation to know the entire Torah by heart this is why debates are not really the best example of knowledge debates generally speaking are the example of who knows how to, to think quickly to think quickly to come up with tools and words in order to fool the audience to carry him to the other side similar to a lawyer real debates are done with time with text without pressure so don't debate anybody not online not on videos focus on learning focus on learning enough 
to know the information, to know the Torah, and also to develop enough humility that when someone gives you something about our Torah that is contradictory, that is not explainable, just know you don't know everything. But you could find out. If you take enough time, you open up the books, you'll find the answer. Trust me when I tell you, we've been around for 3,333 years since we got the Torah of Mount Sinai. No Arab from 1,400 years ago, and needless to say, no idolater from 2,000 years ago is going to teach us our Torah. If you combine both of their religions, they don't add up to a single page in our Holy Torah. But of course, they will always sound like Yaakov because that's their intention. If you allow them, they'll make you even feel like they're Yaakov. The key is to know who's really Yaakov. The key is to know that Yaakov has the answers. You have to focus on learning our holy Torah and not debating any of these monkeys, not debating any of these elephants, not debating any of these idolaters, not debating any of these people. You have to go learn about what Rashi says. Now, for anyone that knows me already for all the years, this has nothing to do with race. This has nothing to do with color. I have plenty of friends, students, employees, former employees, all types of people that I've associated with from all over the world. I have students that I treat like my children and even spend more time with them than I do with my own children that are black people, that are Spanish people, that are from different parts of the Middle East. None of that stuff matters to me. I don't see color. So don't make any comment, oh, he's racist, he's this. Go play that card on somebody else. Even on my channel, you'll see that one of my very dear sons, who I call my son, but he's really from a different mother, he, uh, you know, married another one of my daughters. He's black, she's not. So it's a, we have made a whole movie for them. Not because we're looking for views, because we thought it was a special story. So this has nothing to do with race. Race has nothing to do with Judaism. Judaism has everything to do with the Torah. Now to remind any of you that perhaps are going to be attacked or confused about the Israelite, Hebrew Israelite nonsense that is uh, becoming louder and more obnoxious today, you don't need to debate them because you could destroy their entire belief system in a single sentence. Their whole principle, their whole belief system is based on their color. Because they're black, therefore they're the Jews. That's their belief. Why? Because they believe that Judaism started somehow in Egypt. Not really sure how they got there. And then they believe because Moses married uh, Tzipporah, and it says Tzipporah was a Kushit, and Kushit could be translated into a, uh, a black woman. So therefore, that also is, supports their uh, warped logic. So again, Judaism did not start with Moses. Everyone knows this, but apparently no one taught them this. Judaism started with Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, we learn about him the first time at the end of Parashat Noach. Avram Avinu came from Babel, and he was in a city called Ur Kasdim. At the end of Parashat Noach, in chapter 10, you'll see 
that there's a city called Bavel, Babylon. And in that city they had, in that uh, uh, country they had a place called Ur-Kasdim. And then after that, in the beginning of Parashat, Lech Lecha, we see that Avram leaves with his family, Ur-Kasdim, and goes to Haran. Now what are all these places today? Bavel is Babylon. Babylon, or Babylonia, you look it up on the internet, that is modern-day Iraq. Iraq. And Haran is Turkey. Now, throughout all of history, including today, you will never find black people living and being the majority of the people of Iraq. Perhaps some African-American or African black people, whatever, you know, Haitians move there, hanging out there, maybe have a few shops, a few electronic stores, a few, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, restaurants, whatever they do. But as far as the people themselves in Iraq have never and will never be black people. Some of them are darker. Some of them are lighter. Some of them skin complexion like mine. Some have a little darker. Some a little lighter. But nonetheless, everyone knows they're not African Americans. They don't look like Kanye West. They don't look like P. Diddy. They don't look like 50 Cent. They certainly look don't look like the Hebrew Israelites. Avram is not something you can challenge. Everyone knows everything started with Avram. Avram came from Iraq. Sarah also came from Iraq. Not Egypt. Not Ethiopia. Not Nigeria. So anyone that says they're Jewish because they're black is simply an idiot who doesn't know anything about Judaism. Now, are there black Jews? Absolutely there are. There are black Jews in Nigeria. There are black Jews in Israel. In, there are black Jews in America. There are black Jews everywhere. But one of the unique things that Akadosh Baruch Hu put into the creation, only in the Jewish people and no other people, is that the Jewish people change their form due to the air. That's what the Zohar Kadosh says. That the Jewish people, if they move to a certain place, their form will change over the generations to start looking like the people that they live next to. So that means that if you have an Ashkenazi Jew, white as a piece of bread, move him and his family and his little white kids that eat uh, uh, chulent and gefilte fish, you move them to Africa. You build a nice community over there. Go back there three, four hundred years later, you're going to see some of his descendants without intermarriage. Some of his descendants are much darker than some of the people that you see today and call them black. Why? Because our skin complexion is not like other people based on biology. It has to do with HaKadosh Baruch Hu's spirituality. This is why you have Jews of all colors, of all shapes. There was a huge community 
of Chinese Jews up until maybe uh, less than a hundred years ago over 5,000 Jews lived in China and they looked as Chinese as the Chinese people you see today with the eyes with the skin complexion with everything they looked Chinese but they were 100% Jewish this is not intermarriage this is not conversion Jewish same thing with Ethiopian Jews many of them that moved into to Israel after confirming that they're all 100% Jewish not converts not people that were born non-Jews and want to become Jews no no they are 100% Jewish and of course there are many issues with the the uh uh, uh the Jews from uh, from Biafra and other parts of Africa because there's not enough proofs and nonetheless even when there are enough proofs there's not a, a enough uh, unfortunately there's not a big enough rabbi with big enough shoulders to take it on and simply put the Echshel on the Biafran Jews and the other Jews that are living in Africa but let no one confuse you to think that your skin complexion is what makes you Jewish or what doesn't make you Jewish there are Jews in Venezuela that look exactly like the rest of the people in Venezuela there are Jews in Iraq there are Jews in Iran to this day there are Jews in Iran there are still this day there's a community of Jews in Iran that are religious Jews there are Jews in Yemen that look just like the Yemenite people there are Jews in Afghanistan there are Jews in India that look just like the Indians many of them moved already to Eretz Israel there's a entire Indian Jewish community in Israel they all look like people from India and they are from India but they're Jews that have a direct connection to the time of the Beta Mikdash 2000 years ago this is the one unique thing in the physicality of the Jews that's unlike anyone else in the world because if you're a Spanish Chinese uh Russian black whatever you are and you're a Gentile guess what you can move to America as black 300 years later your kids are still black so long as you contained the assimilation your kids are still black you're Russian you move to the middle of Africa so long as you contain the assimilation don't assimilate with the people that are of different color guess what 500 years later you're still white like a piece of bread Russian why because the color of the Russian or the black or the Chinese or the Indian that are not Jewish have to do with biology have to do with the physical makeup of the people the Jewish people it has to do with Akadosh Baruch Hu. it has to do with Akadosh Baruch Hu. and we've seen and we have proofs where you can look online pick any nation in the world just put the nation and then the word Jewish after it and you'll find pictures or even videos of Jewish people that have a written written not theoretical not belief in my heart 
written proofs that they are connected to the same Jews that were at Mount Sinai. They were connected to the Jews at the, at the, uh, the Bet HaMikdash 2,000 years ago. Syrian Jews, some of the oldest communities out there. What do you think? If you go to Syria, you'll see them look different? They look like Syrians. The uh, Jews from Tripoli, my ancestors. What do you think we look like? A, uh, Moroccans? No, we look like Jews from Tripoli. And Moroccan Jews, what do you think they look like? Uh, Jews from, uh, from, uh, from America? No, they look like Moroccans. Why? Because that's how Kadosh Baruch Hu created the world with the Jews being unique, both physically and spiritually. Now, if you're going to play the race card, at least know who you're playing with. We are called the people of the book because we follow the book. We don't speak extra loud or extra obnoxious or extra intimidating just for the sake of proving our points. We don't need to. We have the proof. We have the connection. Now, if you want to join our people, you want to be a real Jew, you don't need to pretend. Salam Aleikum. Welcome. You're welcome to come. You have to convert. Orthodox conversion. Go to a Bed-Din. Follow the laws of the Torah. Then you'll be a Jew. Don't tell me you're a Jew because of your color. Don't tell me you're a Jew because of some person that told you whatever they told you. You want to be a Jew? Follow the Torah. Torah says, if you weren't born a Jew, you have to convert to Judaism. Judaism is not determined by DNA. Judaism is not determined by feelings. Judaism is not determined by theories. Judaism is determined based on the laws of the Torah. And those laws of the Torah welcome everybody in the world today to convert to Judaism if they want. But if you are going to continue playing this nonsensical card that's going to mislead the public, know that you will be punished severely. The genom for the Gentiles that tried to mislead the Jewish people will never end. The Mashiach will come. The world will end. But the fire that burns those people will never end. The agony and pain that they will have will be shown to all of society. So much so when the resurrection of the dead happens, Akadosh Baruch Hu will allow them to resurrect completely disheveled and destroyed just to see all of the righteous people prosper and for all of the righteous people to see all of the wicked people that didn't follow the way of God. So if you want to follow the Torah, follow. Come. Join us. You want to distort the Torah? You are an enemy enemy of God. And God will take care of you. For you Jewish people that are watching, it's better you get acclimated to your desk, to your books, because you have a spiritual war coming, whether you like it or not. With that being said, you guys can start asking questions in a moment. I'll have a drink. And as Hashem, Kadosh Baruch will give us the answers. Okay, first question I see is... 
I understand that men should not watch TV due to perhaps viewing immodest women on TV. However, can women watch TV, such as the news and other old-fashioned family-type movies? No, what's forbidden for a man is forbidden for a woman. Women are also not allowed to watch immodest women or immodest men. Uh, and also, they're also not allowed to uh, waste their time watching things that are not going to help them get closer to Hashem. Needless to say, to watch news and all types of uh, things that are full of Lashon Ara, uh, full of gossip, uh, and needless to say, full of things that are antithetical to the Torah, uh, is uh, unhealthy for a marriage and will certainly cause problems for that uh, woman in her life, in her marriage in her connection to God. So TV is not good for anyone. Now to watch specific programs that are educational, whether it's to learn a trade, uh, you know, you, you want to learn some type of profession, or you're trying to learn some type of uh, documentary, or you want to see certain, uh, 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 you know, videos about uh, learning a, uh, a skill or a certain subject, so long as everything is modest, you can. But this is selective programming, uh, selective programming. To, but to watch this general uh, shows, you know, the, the pretend he's the father, she's the mother, but he has a girlfriend and she has a boyfriend and the kids grow up and they love everybody and then they find out about each other and they can't and they're disappointed and then you get all emotional and you start thinking that your husband is cheating on you because the guy on TV cheated on his wife, all that stuff. Get that out of your house, get that out of your life, get that out of your mind. It's not good for men, it's certainly not good for women to watch that type of stuff. You want to watch something that's educational, it's going to get you uh, either uh, a better job or uh, more educated about something that's relevant to what you do every day uh, or, or, uh, or something that's going to educate you about Torah. By all means, there's plenty of information that you can learn and watch. But other things are certainly a problem. And, and the news is simply not necessary. Uh, it's full of immodesty, it's full of lies, uh, and uh, it will create no value whatsoever in your life. There's no need for you to know the news. Uh, other than uh, if you want to see, I don't know, maybe once a week, once a month, once a year, see the headlines, uh, what's uh, just the title, and you already get the point. Who died, who lied, who uh, succeeded, who failed, who is being uh, destroyed in the media now. That's, it, that's the news every single day for the last 50 years. Nothing changes. Um, someone's asking, what does it mean to use Torah for personal benefit? As it's mentioned by Hillel and Rabbi Tzadok in Pirkei Avot, not to do it. And why is it such an important subject that it was repeated in two separate Mishnayot? Uh, so we have a, an entire series of Pirkei Avot that discusses these particular things in much more deep than I'll be able to do now, because it's, it's a very deep subject. But nonetheless, it's when somebody takes the Torah and specifically teaches it uh, for the sake of monetary profit or for the sake of profit for honor, and not for the sake of learning it for the sake of learning and learning it for the sake of teaching in order to get people closer to Hashem. When a person, let's say, for example, is going to uh, um, use Torah for, uh, in order to make money out of it, where he's, he's going to end up saying things that are going to end up distorting the Torah. He's either going to say things that are not really in the Torah uh, because he knows that people will like it more. So, for example, like people that say that there is no punishment and God really needs us, that obviously is not in the Torah. 
But there are people that say this, and they even claim that this is in the Torah, uh, because they know that this is what gives people a good feeling about their sins. And if they feel good about their sins because of what they heard from that person, then they're going to want to support that person because he makes them feel good. He makes them feel good about their wickedness. So a person like this goes to uh, the uh, Gehenom and never comes out. Never comes out. So using the Torah for that type of uh, thing, uh, that's obviously a benefit uh, for that person in this world, but it's certainly going to be a disaster to that person uh, for eternity. So you're not allowed to uh, use the Torah for that particular sense. Now, you're allowed to make a living Uh, You're allowed to make a living, meaning that if, let's say, for example, you want to teach, somebody asks you to teach somebody uh, either a private lesson or a lecture or uh, teach them Gemara or teach them Aleph Bet, whatever it is, you're allowed to charge for what you do because there's an opportunity cost uh, that uh, if you weren't teaching this person or you weren't teaching this group, you'd be able to do work elsewhere and make a certain amount of money. So you're allowed to make a living from the Torah, there's no there's no prohibition against making a living out of it, but you can't make the profit the primary goal, like people do in the business world. Uh, it's a uh, because when you do, it'll eventually and inevitably going to lead the person to changing and distorting the Torah, where either they're going to outright lie about what's in the Torah just to appease people, or they're going to eliminate part of the truth where they're going to tell people parts of, let's say, the weekly Torah portion, but exclude the parts that talk about punishment, the parts that talk about uh, observance of certain mitzvot that they know that people in that community are not observing. So the you know removal of the truth is also a, another form of lying, another form of lying. So when a person is doing it for a personal benefit, which usually is either for a benefit of money or a benefit of honor or a combination thereof, then they're going to uh, end up changing the Torah uh, and, uh, and misleading people. And that's why it's, it's, uh, it's so serious, because anyone that uh, changes the Torah has no share of the world to come. And it's very easy to change the Torah. Very, very easy. You saw how that Arab changed the Torah. You see how the Christians change the Torah every single day. And unfortunately, you see many so-called rabbis change the Torah to their likings, uh, on a regular basis uh, in order to fit their crowds, uh, their audiences, uh, by teaching them only parts of the Torah that, are, uh, that they believe their crowd can handle rather than teaching the Torah that their crowd needs. There's a difference between the two. What your crowd can handle is, uh, is really uh, you know, uh, not something that you could ever be uh, aware of because you're not a prophet. And uh, if God gave the Torah to Amisled, that means that we can handle the entire Torah. But what you need is different for different people. If you're uh, in front of a crowd of people that are new to Torah, then you need to teach them about reward and punishment. If you're in front of a, a group of Avrechim, uh, Torah scholars, you have to teach them about things that are much more advanced, much more complicated. If you're in front of a group of uh, elders, you have to deal with other issues. So it depends what your crowd is, but it's always the same Torah. It's just, you know, it's a, uh, what you teach that group. When you do it for the sake of teaching the students in order to, better, to help them better themselves, then the Torah itself is not going to change. But when you do it in order to better yourself, your own circumstances, the Torah is, becomes dynamic and constantly changes to the point where it's no longer Torah. Uh, next question, Jeremy's asking, do I have to not sell my clothing 
Do I have to not sell my clothing three days before and after Xmas? Uh, or is that only buying from their uh, businesses? Is it a violation of uh, if my shul prays the wrong way and I turn to Mizrach? <laughs> uh, so as far as selling your clothes, uh, you can sell your clothes at any time. Uh, you know, especially since the, uh, you know, the, the, the customers, you're not targeting specifically people that are idolaters. You're not targeting specifically uh, people that are part of the church. You're, you have your business open. You do what you need to do. Now, uh, if, uh, if you could avoid it, avoid it. But uh, because the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah says that, uh, you know, not to do business with an idolater uh, three days before he goes to his idol-worshipping uh, holiday because lest he'll use the money that you give him in order to honor his false god. So that's the that's the source of what he's saying. So, but as far as if you're selling a product, your customer could be anybody. It could be an idolater. It could be a Jew. It could be a uh, atheist. It could be all types of people. It could be a Muslim that are you know they're monotheistic. They're heretics, but they're monotheistic. So you're you have no problem as far as selling the things that you're selling. Uh, and uh, you know, as far as uh, any time, you know, even the day of or day before, there's no, there's no issue there. As far as a, uh, uh, you know, praying in a different direction, and then your shul, that depends if there's a rabbi in the shul. If there's a rabbi in the shul, you have to follow the rabbi. Uh, you have to follow the rabbi. Uh, but if there's no rabbi in the shul, then uh, you know, then you have to tell them that they're praying in the wrong direction. Uh, but certainly, you should bring this up to the rabbi. With proof, bring a compass and show the rabbi that the uh, you know the, the direction is uh, different. If you're so confident that it's different, show it to him, and you know, and I'm sure that the rabbi, if he has even an ounce of yirachanayim, he'll change. It's not uh, it's not such a big deal. It doesn't require uh, them to change a building or anything. Can you please explain what chalav Israel, pat Israel, kemach yeshan uh, on products really mean? Uh, it's necessary to follow these stringencies today. Uh, yeah, technically, I mean, it's it's not. Uh, uh, again, it all depends on where a person is in their life. Where a person is in their life, if they're brand new, uh, bal tshuva. And by brand new, I don't mean you know they started doing tshuva last week. Brand new, even within the first few years. Uh, and uh, you know, if, if it's difficult for them to take this on, then they could just focus on being kosher. Focus on keeping Shabbat, being modest, the basics. Uh, if they're more advanced, or even if they're new, but they're stronger and they're willing to do some of this, like only uh, consuming Chalav Israel, which is a uh, you know having the supervision of Jews on the cow. It's not a uh, it's not literally a cow that only lives in Israel. You could have Chalav Israel that's manufactured in America, uh, but it has to be supervised by a Jew. It has to be done by a Jew as far as milking the cow. Uh, you know, the, the Kemach Yashan has to do with the uh, Pesach. Uh, you know, these are different things that are uh, certainly important. But, again, it's if a person is brand new, it'll be too difficult for them to even understand some of this stuff. There's plenty of information online. You could go into more details. But I could tell you this. Today, if you live in America, or you live in Canada, or you live in England... Uh, Australia, Israel, really where there's the biggest you know, Jewish populations out there, it's so easy to 
acquire these products, whether it be Chalav uh, Yisrael or Kemach Yashan or all the other things out there, that it's, it's, it's easy to observe these things if one wants to do it. It's easy to observe it. Usually, the problems that people have, I would say, uh, with Chalav Yisrael is when it comes to candy. Because uh, the, the candy that's available that's kosher, uh, you know, it's uh, chocolates and things of that nature, all of the big brands are not Chalav Yisrael. All of the big brands are not Chalav Yisrael. Uh, whereas the, uh, the, the Jewish you know, companies uh, that have candy, they have similar things, uh, and they are Chalav Yisrael. But if a person, let's say, I don't know, he has a big uh, lust for a Twix bar or a Snickers bar, you know, or some type of Hershey bar, that's not Chalav Yisrael. So if he's stringent with Chalav Yisrael, he's, uh, or he wants to be stringent with Chalav Yisrael, and, but you tell him, listen, if you're going to do that, you are going to have to give up on your weekly uh, Twix bar. Uh, now, if a person is weak, he'll give up the whole thing. So it's not worth it. It's not worth it to even tell him that because that will just weaken him. On the other hand, if a, uh, if a person is not such a uh, food hog and uh, it's not really such a big deal, then to keep Chalav Yisrael is not really a big deal. Uh, but I can tell you one thing, that uh, a, there are certain... Uh, uh, certain uh, Jews that are more stringent than others. There are certain Jews that are more stringent than others uh, when it comes to Chalav Yisrael, when it comes to Kemach Yishan, uh, you know, the, For example, Chabad is uh, much more stringent when it comes to Chalav Yisrael than I think uh, you know, uh, many others, if not everybody. Uh, they're, uh, to them, if it's not Chalav Yisrael, it's, uh, it, it's like as if it's not kosher. And that's simply not true. Uh, if something is kosher, but it's not Chalav Yisrael, it's still kosher. And according to Rav Moshe Feinstein, uh, one of the uh, giant pioneers of American Judaism, and one of the biggest rabbis in history, uh, the regular uh, milk that you have uh, that's kosher, that you have in America, uh, is, is perfectly fine to drink. Uh, and uh, we don't have any concern about you drinking uh, kosher milk that's not Chalav Yisrael, because the, the main concern that uh, that's behind Chalav Yisrael is that if you gave the responsibility to a non-Jew, he may end up giving you milk from uh, a camel or give you milk from, uh, I don't know, from a pig. Now, Rav Moshe Feinstein answers in his Igrot Moshe, and he says this is not a realistic concern anymore. Perhaps it was a concern in the past, in previous generations, you know, I don't know, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, but in today's world, it's, not a no, it's no longer a concern. And the reason why is because these uh, places where Jews live, like America, have such stringent laws for anyone that puts the wrong ingredients in, in their products that they could lose a lot more than they gain. So even if they hate Jews and they want Jews to, uh, to uh, consume non-kosher milk from some pig, they're never going to do it. They're never going to put pig milk or camel milk in a jar that says cow milk. They're never going to do it because they could lose, number one, all of their business. The government will shut them down. Number two, their customers are not only Jewish. In fact, the majority of their customers are non-Jews. So it's, it doesn't... Uh, and number three, there is a, uh, there's so much competition out there that if somebody would simply make a product that's not good, immediately they get replaced. They get replaced. There's very, very few products that are uh, that are cons considered uh, you know indisposable or like uh, consumer staples. Very few products. 
you know, most things out there are replaceable. Most companies out there have to constantly innovate, even more so with food. So uh, when it comes to, chala, to, to kosher milk, that's not halab Israel. According to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, it's not a problem for a Jew to drink it if it's not possible for him to get Chalav Yisrael. But if you live in a, in a developed Jewish community and it's easy for you to get Chalav Yisrael because it's easily accessible, then certainly you should take it on. It's not really a stringency. It's not really anything. It's, 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 it's easily accessible to you. Why wouldn't you want to get Chalav Yisrael? But if it's difficult for you to get it because either the community is not developed so they don't have it, or it's like halfway developed, similar to Florida, where in Florida you get chalav, chalav Israel, but many times I would say probably about, you know, uh, at least now I think lately it's been better, but I would say uh, at some point when we first moved here, 50, 60% of the time you bought the chalav Israel, it was bad. By the time you got it to your house, it was already bad, even though the date, the date on it said that it was uh, literally has another uh, two weeks left, two weeks in their dreams. It was already bad the minute you got it to your house. Uh, similar to the problems you have with organic eggs, where 9 out of 10 eggs are, uh, have blood in them that you can't eat. So there are sometimes issues with the com- company or the community or, or, or the market, but if you have easy access to good products that are halal sell or otherwise, because you live in a developed community, certainly you should take these things on. But it should never cause a fight between a couple, if, let's say, for example, the wife wants to keep Chalav Yisrael, but the husband doesn't, no problem. Let him eat as, so long as it's kosher. Let him eat his kosher dairy as much as he wants. Don't even look at him the wrong way. What he's doing is perfectly fine. And I know some really, really big tzaddikim that say they don't see a difference between Chalav Yisrael and regular kosher after doing a serious investigation on the two. Now, again, Rav Moshe Feinstein says it's allowed to eat, to drink non-Chalav Yisrael uh, uh, dairy, but again, he's not saying it all the time. He's just saying it simply that if you have no access or it's difficult to access Chalab Yisrael, then surely you could rely on the leniency of getting regular kosher milk. But if you have a uh, uh, easy access to Chalab Yisrael, certainly you should try to do to use Chalab Yisrael. But if somebody is difficult or, or, or simply stubborn and they're, uh, they're bent on having just kosher, that's fine too. That's fine too. Don't give them a headache over it. This is not the place to. Uh, 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 this is not the place to argue on it. Meaning, uh, couples should never argue over this stuff. Uh, next question: Judah is asking. Hi, Rabbi. I heard for a long time one has eighteen minutes after candle lighting on Shabbat and Yom Tov to still be allowed to do any of the thirty-nine malachot, or is it only in emergency situations that one can use the eighteen minutes? Uh, well, it's a good question. It actually depends on where you are in the world. Uh, because the uh, the way that they do the clock here in America is different than the way they do it in Israel. Uh, they don't have the, that grace period in Israel like they do in America. Uh, like the publicized time in Israel is uh, more precise to the actual Shabbat time, whereas in America they have that approximate uh, 18 minutes. Now, a person should know that even if they have 18 minutes, when they lit the candles, if they accepted the Shabbat, in their mind when they lit the candles that shabbat came in there even if you accepted the shabbat let's say an hour before shabbat let's say you say you know what i'm going to take on the uh, uh added stringency on myself i want to accept shabbat an extra hour early okay now you light those candles you accept shabbat an extra hour early let's say five minutes after you lit the candles 
you realize that, uh, I don't know, you forgot to turn on the stove. You forgot to, uh, whatever, you forgot to put something on, you can't turn it on. Even though Shabbat hasn't started for everybody else. And it's not going to start for anybody else for another hour. You accepted it at that time. Now, you're allowed, halachically, to tell somebody that hasn't accepted the Shabbat yet to turn something on or off for you. But you yourself are not allowed to do it because your Shabbat already began. The same concept with the 18 minutes. If you and your wife accepted Shabbat at that time, Shabbat began for you. If you didn't, then you have that, uh, that leniency, that, uh, that room uh, to do so, to use those 18 minutes to do different things. I would highly recommend uh, for people to start preparing for Shabbat, uh, you know, as far as, you know, close up shop, don't work anymore, no computer anymore, two hours before Shabbat uh, begins. Uh, so that way you have enough time to do all the last minute stuff, get, uh, get dressed, do everything, and not leave everything for the last half hour or hour like many people do. Because once you get accustomed to using that last 18 minutes uh, every week, it's very, very easy for you to start becoming accustomed to violating Shabbat also. Uh, so it's, it's ideal. A person should not use those 18 minutes on a regular basis. Alacha uh, Yomit says that uh, upon waking up in the morning, if one needs to relieve itself and can't wait 72 minutes. Ovadia says that one should go to the bathroom first and then wash your hands afterwards. This is also Ravadja's personal custom. But usually everyone says to have water right next to the bed and wash it immediately upon waking up. Uh, what could have uh, explained? Well, you explain it yourself. If the person has to go immediately, if, if a person has either a weak bladder or uh, whatever the case is, they have to go. They can't, they can't have time. They don't have time to wash their hands. Even if the... The, uh, uh, the, the cups and everything is right next to his bed. But he or she has to go. 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 Go right away and relieve yourself. But if you can wait, then wash your hands and then go. You don't uh, 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 put your uh, body in danger for the sake of uh, washing your hands. If you can wait, uh, which most people do uh, can wait, especially younger people that are healthy, uh, then wait until you wash your hands. But if you simply can't wait... Uh, then uh, then definitely go. This is uh, something that uh, most people are going to have uh, to not wait, uh, you know, at some point in their life. You know, either because of uh, you drank too much before you went to sleep or whatever the case is. Uh, so you're not always going to be able to be picture perfect like a robot and, uh, you know, and uh, wake up and wash your hands, you know, and then slowly but surely get to the bathroom all uh, purified and everything. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes you have to whoosh, fly to the bathroom. Fly to the bathroom and, uh, you know, and, and, and take care of your business there. And that's not a problem at all. What you shouldn't do if you don't, one thing you should take into account is that if you have not washed your hands before going to the bathroom, then you should try to make sure not to touch your face. Don't touch your face, don't touch your eyes, don't touch your mouth. Uh, you know, with your hands. Don't touch anybody else uh, before you wash your hands. You know, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, that's something you should try. But obviously to clean yourself, to uh, relieve yourself and all that stuff, it's fine. It's no problem. 
Shalom Rabbi said a Torah observant Jew called Ishmael change his name? No, Chas Shalom. No. Why? Why should a Jew called Ishmael change his name? First of all, Ishmael is a uh, is a name that means that uh, God heard you. That's what Ishmael means. God uh, hears you. Uh, number one. Number two, we have some of the greatest sages uh, mentioned in our uh, in our uh, Gemara. Rabbi Ishmael, Rabbi Ishmael uh, Kohen Gadol, uh, Ishmael Kohen Gadol was a uh, was one of the holiest men that ever lived. Uh, so much so the Gemara says in Masechet Brachot that uh, God asked him for a blessing. So, <laughs> so I mean, this is a uh, unique Gemara, very uh, interesting explanation on it. But the point being is, Ishmael is a uh, is, is not a problem at all to have if a, a Jew has it. Unfortunately, it's become more common for Arabs to have uh, the name Ishmael today than Jews do, but if a Jew already has the name Ishmael, they uh, should not change it. No, there's no reason for them to change it. They should actually learn about the righteous people that are called Ishmael and Amisrael. That's what they should do. Well, the is one allowed to give Chumash Tanakh with commentary to a Gentile. Uh, let them get it for themselves. Why do you need to give it to them? Um, please explain Shatnez. What types of clothing must be checked? Ah, it's a very good question. So I actually have on my website uh, a, uh, this is actually good for both in regards to the issues of Shatnez. This is something that's good for both Jews and Gentiles to hear. And yes, I said correctly, Jews and Gentiles. Because Shatnez is under the umbrella, umbrella of what's called Kilaim. Kilaim. And this is the prohibition of mixing uh, two different uh, species of things. Now, the, uh, both the Jews and the Gentiles are prohibited, prohibited, not allowed, to combine two species of animals. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, what they do, the, the, the breeding that people do with different uh, species is forbidden for Jews and it's also forbidden for Gentiles. According to the Noahide laws, Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin has a whole section, maybe 10 dapim about it, of the, all the different details of the uh, Noahide laws. And uh, one of the issues is kilaim. So it's forbidden for Gentiles and Jews to breed two species together, like a dog and a cat or, or things like that. Also, it's forbidden for Gentiles to combine the uh, trees, different trees. Let's, I don't know, a pine tree and an uh, apple tree. Not allowed to combine different uh, trees, uh, which again is something that's standard in the world today. Now, once it was already combined by somebody, you're allowed to benefit from it, but to combine it yourself is a Torah violation. Torah violation both for the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews, according to the Gemara and Masechet Sanhedrin, have an additional prohibition, which is Shatnez, which is wool and linen being sewed in together. Sewed in together. Now, on my website, uh, in the uh, section uh, somewhere there for free education where there's books. If you scroll enough down, there's a file uh, that talks about Shatnez and different Shatnez uh, uh, clinics, which are places where there are people that are professional uh, that check your uh, clothes and suits and whatever you bring them for Shatnez and even also show you what typically has Shatnez and what doesn't. Uh, so if, you know, suits always have to be checked. Suits always have to be checked. 
There are also certain types of boots that were discovered to always have shotness that's not removable. Like, for example, Uggs. Uggs, uh, the boots that, you know, in my opinion, are really ugly, but I know some people like them. They are, uh, a few years ago, I remember there was a big thing about it, that women found out that this thing has shotness and it's not removable. You can't fix it. Like a suit, if it has shotness, nine out of ten times, you could remove the shotness and replace it with something that you're allowed to have because the shotness usually is in the collar and different parts of the shoe, uh, the, the suit, not the entire suit. Uh, so shotness, you need to check in, uh, you know, in blankets sometimes. It depends what your blanket is made out of. It depends uh, what your clothing is made out of. But certainly there are certain things that are more prone to have shotness. And shotness is a, is a biblical obligation. It's not a uh, uh, rabbinical. So much so that the Gemara says that if you know that there's another Jew that is walking around with shotness, for sure, everybody knows, he knows he has shotness on, you know he has shotness, and he's walking around the street with shotness, you are allowed to rip it off of him, even if he's going to end up being naked. Rip it off of him in the middle of the street. Why? Because him walking around with a biblical violation is considered Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name. So it's better that he gets embarrassed for being naked than, uh, than Hashem's name being, uh, being desecrated. Uh, so it's a shotness is a very big deal. Uh, guys always need to check your suits. As far as the rest of your clothing, it depends what you wear. If you wear you know, sweatpants, sweatshirts, things like that, then that's usually not something that has a problem. If you have, uh, you know, silk products, that's not a problem. That's not an issue. But if you have things that have wool in them, uh, then certainly you should have uh, them checked. Uh, you know, you, you certainly have to get them checked. And whatever you have uh, has to be checked, regardless if you wear it. You have to, uh, you put it around your body, you, you have to check it. Uh, my cousin told me that she went to purchase mezuzot at a Judaica store in upstate New York. They asked her if she wants to purchase a kosher or, God forbid, a non-kosher mezuzah. This doesn't make sense. Can she report this store to rabbinic authority? Yes, she can report this store, uh, but they're not going to do anything because Judaica stores many times are owned by either Gentiles or by uh, non-religious Jews. It's purely a business. It has nothing to do with Judaism. They just simply capitalize on a need in the market by buying products that uh, Jews uh, would need, whether that's a uh, mezuzah, uh, uh, a uh, cases, or uh, different uh, things for the candles. They just, they're simply stores, they're merchants. It has nothing to do with Judaism. Unless you see that the store owner uh, that's there has a keep on, is an Orthodox Jew. Don't assume anything about his, uh, his, his products. Never buy a mezuzah or tefillin from a Judaica store unless you know that the owner that's running the store, not just owner that's behind the scenes, the owner that's running the store is a Yeresh Jew, has fear of heaven, and he's only going to have kosher stuff. But if you don't know, you don't buy mezuzot and tefillin from Judaica stores because many times their, uh, their stuff is, a, uh, is, is not only not kosher, it's a uh, it's fake like I've, I've seen people literally get a mezuzah and then uh, you know they asked me to check it i opened the mezuzah it's printer paper printer paper that somebody literally typed on a computer and put it on a printer and they put this uh, piece of paper in there it's it's worthless you throw it in the garbage uh you know it's, uh, sometimes you uh, literally i've seen one time there was newspaper in there you know so these are things that people don't realize because people put a lot of weight 
on the uh, case, on the case itself. And the case is uh, no different than uh, your suit or your, uh, or your shoes. It's just a case, it's just shoes. It doesn't uh, represent the holiness. The holiness is what's inside. What's inside? If she wants to buy a kosher mezuzah, she has to go to a kosher person. And a kosher person would never offer something that the Torah forbids, something that's not kosher. Uh, you know, a, a righteous Jew will never offer you anything that's not kosher. So certainly she should not buy anything from them, anything at all. Uh, that's one. Two, uh, it's a, uh, she could report them to the rabbinic authority, but don't put too much weight on it and expect them to do anything. Most likely they're not going to do anything about it because they'll look at it just as a private business. Maybe they'll warn the community, but most likely not. Uh, and three, if she wants to get a kosher mezuzah, she can go on our website, bezlatashem.org. We have uh, two different types of uh, mezuzot with different types of casings. All of our mezuzot come from Eretz Yisrael, from people that I know personally, that are Talmidei Chachamim, that are serious Torah scholars, some more uh, than others. There's one Mekubal that writes our mezuzot, but they're much more expensive. And there's other Talmidei Chachamim that write our mezuzot. And the point is, is that they, uh, they're, they're available. They're not going to be $50, like you could buy at a Judaica store. They're more expensive, but you know what you're getting. Uh, I'm sure that there's other people that could sell you stuff for cheaper that's also kosher. But uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I, I know what uh, I want to have in my house. I know my, my dear wife, God bless her. She's very, very stringent when it comes to mezuzot. Very stringent. Uh, I've never seen anybody, <laughs> anybody like a God bless her. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, if she could put a mezuzah on my forehead, she'd put, you know, she, she, she wants the best mezuzah that exists in the world and, uh, she would have nothing less. Why? She knows this is, this is protection. This is a Kadosh Baruch Hu, This is in the Torah. This is big deal, big deal. There's endless amount of stories that, uh, we have throughout all of the generations about the significant protection uh, uh, that a, a mezuzah brings to a person's life and even more so the significant damage that a person can have if their mezuzah is not okay. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a, quite a few stories uh, that I've told over the years and I'm sure many other rabbis have told over the years about literally people being ill, people not having the ability to give birth uh, to have children, people not finding their zivug, people having uh, strange things happen to them, and uh, many, many times they uh, somebody would tell them along the way, check your mezuzot. They would find a mistake in the mezuzah, and they would have to replace it. And literally, the second they replaced it, everything was fixed. Sometimes you would see miracles in front of your face. Arav uh, Grossman, Shichye. Uh, you know the uh, Migdal Emek. He uh, he said a story in his sefer, in his personal uh, life story, an extraordinary book, highly recommended for anyone to read. He says that one of the miracles that he witnessed in his own eyes is his own daughter had a uh, literally an incurable, undiagnosable eye infection that was destroying her face for a very very long time. She was suffering, and it was a real big nightmare. And, uh, and she suffered with this thing. She went to many, many doctors. No one could even diagnose what she had, why, why it's so bad. No one understood. One day he uh, went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Allah Shalom, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe told him, check the mezuzah. Uh, and he immediately called his wife 
to check the mezuzah on her on the room that his daughter sleeps in. And the uh, the daughter is not in Israel. He called Israel. The daughter is with him in America. He went to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe in America. So the daughter is with Rav Grossman in America. But the mom picked up the phone in Israel, checked her room, took the mezuzah, gave it to one of the rabbis over there to check. They said there's a, there's a mistake in the, in the mezuzah. What the ink on the word eyes uh, is uh, you know is uh, broken or it's uh, combined two letters. Bottom line is you have to change the mezuzah. They changed the mezuzah in Israel, right there and then. Literally took I don't know maybe a half hour. The girl has been sick for like two three years. They changed the mezuzah within twenty four hours. Within twenty four hours, this illness was almost gone. The doctor that saw her couldn't believe it. No one else. So people have no idea. Don't willing people. I did a shiur one time about mezuzah. People are willing to spend a million dollars on a house, but they're uh, cheap to spend a few thousand dollars on mezuzot. It's the dumbest thing in the world. No problem spending half a million dollars in a house, a million dollars in a house, two million dollars in a house, fifty thousand dollars on window shades, uh, twenty thousand dollars on carpets, chandeliers, five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars mezuzot. Let me get whatever is the cheapest. Let me get uh, 20 of them for $5. $50 each I'll pay. Maximum. You know, it's, they'll spend $300 on a case. But they're not willing to spend $30 on a, uh, on a scroll. So that's the problem. That's why a lot of people have issues. And uh, there was actually a study done in, uh, in New York. Maybe two, three years ago. By a group of Hasidim. That took uh, a bunch of mezuzot. From different people. Random people brought it to a lab these people said they bought some from the judaica stores from this from that different places random people don't know each other brought in their mezuzot some shipped them they checked i think it was something like 85 90 percent of the mezuzot that they checked were pasu and they show you exactly why it's pasu it's not like they're just making it up they show you 80 90 percent of the mezuzot the people they have were not valid mezuzot. And the Rambam writes that uh, a person that misuses a mezuzah turns the mezuzah from a blessing into a curse. So for example, if a person takes a mezuzah and makes it like a chain, puts it on on a chain, that's not a blessing anymore, that's a curse. He uh, takes the mezuzah, he puts it under his pillow. He just turned that mezuzah into a curse. There's actually a famous Rav in Eretz Yisrael that uh, somebody fooled his father to, uh, to put the mezuzah under his pillow so he can get uh, his health back. He died a short while later. After he, uh, after he uh, died, this same Rav, who was a very big Talmud Chacham, just didn't know about mezuzot apparently, or this particular issue about mezuzot, uh, found out what his father did. He asked some real mekubal. The real Mekubal told him, what are you talking about? That's your, your father just killed himself with that. Whoever told him that, killed him. Now I'll do stuff like now I have to put your mezuzah under a pillow. Not, uh, it's disrespecting the mezuzah. So that's the thing. There are certain things you're allowed to do with a mezuzah. Certain things you're not allowed to do with a mezuzah. Point being is, mezuzah is a, is a big deal. Big deal. Big deal. Uh, and a person that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, tries to, uh, uh, you know, save dollar save money on it or or things like that or spends more money on the case than they do on a mezuzah 
Unfortunately, uh, many times they're going to regret it. Either because it's not going to give them the blessing that they want, or the protection that they want, or worse, chas v'shalom. Uh, David is asking, there are no hides who told me that they are studying Mishnayot, even though they're not converting, because the rabbis they're following allow them. Is this really allowed for the Noahides to study? Uh, no. They, those those uh, Noahides that are studying Mishnayot, every word that they're reading in the Mishnah is death penalty. Death penalty from Shemaim. Don't be surprised if a bunch of them get uh, all types of diseases, cancer, and, uh, and the like, and they start dropping dead. And uh, this is not for the point of scaring, it's for the point of, of, of warning them. Warning them from learning the oral Torah, which they're not allowed, and also warning them from listening to those rabbis that change the Torah. That change the Torah, I told them that they're allowed. Not allowed to learn oral Torah. Uh, you want to learn the oral Torah, you have to convert. Uh, my mother is your color and hair just like yours. Oh, uh, Are there Sandia Jews? I'm sorry, I don't know what a Sandia Jew is. Uh, it's possible. I don't know. I don't know. It's a non-Jew that said that uh, they were a Levi when uh, went up to the Torah for Aliyah on Shabbat. Is that person cursed? Can they do tshuva? Certainly they're cursed because they caused a bunch of Jews to uh, uh, to say a name, uh, Hashem's name in vain, they, or to say Amen in vain. Uh, so certainly they got cursed. Certainly they're going to get punished for it. And uh, yes, they can do tshuva, but uh, they're going to suffer for this. The only way they complete the tshuva completely is if they convert. Uh, but if they don't convert, then you know they'll have to suffer for it. Rabbi, we need the series back on Elchanan Vassaman. Uh, you broadcast with uh, examples. Why we have we have Baruch Hashem the uh, the Arab Mashiach series is uh, is a um, is online. We also have a USB for it. Stand Baruch Hashem. Forgive me. Are there Saudi Arabian Jews? Yes, yes, sure, sure, sure. There was a uh, uh, there are many many Jews lived in harmony with Arabs uh, at different times throughout history. I would say that the country that uh, we had the most amount of peace with uh, most of the time, not all the time, uh, was Morocco. Morocco uh, is a very, very favorable place for Jews throughout history. Most of the time, not all the time, there was an evil sultan uh, that uh, murdered some Jews, and including the Baba Sali's older brother uh, in front of everyone with a vicious way he took a, uh, um, not a tank, those uh, cannon. He took a cannon and shot him with the cannon after he tied him to the tree in front of everybody. Uh, so much so that the, uh, the Baba Sali was depressed. There was over maybe a 20 year difference between the Baba Sali and his oldest brother, but he was like his, you know, he's like his rabbi, his father, he was like everything to him. And the Baba Sadi was depressed over this for like four years. Uh, barely left his room. 
uh, after seeing how his brother being uh, being murdered in such a vicious way. But it needed to happen for different uh, mystical reasons. But that was an evil sultan. That was an evil person. Most of the kings of uh, of uh, uh, of Morocco throughout history, including the one of today, are very very uh, favorable to Jews. They even have a history of this particular king's father, I believe, defended the Jews against Hitler when Hitler wanted to come and murder all the Jews of Morocco. The uh, the king of Morocco said, "On my own, on my own body. You want to fight the Jews? You have to fight me first. Hamash, they, uh, he was a hero. He certainly has a share of the world to come just for simply that statement alone. And he did many, many good things for them. And the, and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Jews uh, have a, a very favorable treatment uh, in Morocco. I actually have a couple of students that are in Morocco. Uh, but uh, not enough. We need more. But Morocco was very favorable for the Jews or, you know, throughout history. Uh, they also have uh, in, in Libya... In uh, in uh, Tripoli, uh, Libya, Tripoli, same thing. Uh, yeah, then um, uh, in Egypt, uh, in Iran, uh, in uh, Baghdad. You know, there's there's Jews uh, Jews from uh, Lebanon, all all over, all over the Middle East. Jews have lived at some point or another. Uh, a lot of that changed in 1948 when modern day Israel uh, became a state. Uh, because once they became a state, many of the Arab countries, uh, you know, in essence, uh, turned us into enemies. And uh, there was a lot of problems after that. For example, the, uh, the Syrian Jews that lived in Syria for many generations and had a lot of uh, uh, had, you know, peace and harmony in a very big and successful community, many of them uh, you know, lost uh, everything after, the, uh, after that time because the, uh, and even before it, uh, when the uh, you know pretty much they, st- they were they were viewed as enemies, they were viewed like as if they were spies. Even though they've lived in Syria in harmony for so many generations, the Arabs flipped on them in a second and started uh, burning their synagogues and houses. It was a nightmare. Uh, so, but nonetheless, there is a uh, uh, there is a very very big history there. Many Chachamim uh, lived uh, throughout the Middle East in Turkey in Morocco. Uh, in uh, Baghdad, in uh, uh, you know Tripoli, uh, there's many, many chachamim throughout all the generations uh, that lived throughout the Middle East. But also there's that's the Sephardic Jews uh, that, of course, also lived in Spain at some point. But uh, then you have uh, the Ashkenazi Jews that lived throughout all of Europe, you know Poland, uh, different uh, parts of uh, Russia, uh, and so on. So yeah, there are Jews practically everywhere. Uh, and Hashem specifically did that, the Gemara says, for multiple reasons. Uh, one reason why Hashem spread out the Jews throughout all four corners of the world, where you're literally going to find Jews everywhere in the world. Even though we're very few people, you're going to find us all over the world, more than any other uh, people or nation, uh, specifically because it's part of the ultimate purpose of the world. Number one, it's in order for us to help people that uh, want to convert to Judaism, convert. When you have communities in different remote areas and different places around the world, more people can convert at the end of days before Mashiach comes because this is the last stage. This is the last uh, uh, stop on the train. Uh, so more people are going to be able to convert. And two, there is uh, different sparks of Kedusha that are uh, dispersed throughout all parts of the world that uh, we need to collect. Don't ask me what I mean. This is 
much too deep for this type of shiur, but the point is there's different sparks of Kedusha that are different parts of the world that the Jews that are holy can gather it uh, by being in that place, by being in that place. And that's part of the tikkun of the world. So that's another reason why there are Jews in every part of the world throughout history, including today. One or two more questions and then we're done. We've already gone for two hours, Baruch Hashem. Uh, what is the significance of Avraham getting his name change? Since Ham was involved in seeing his father's nakedness, what is the reason for this? And is it related at all? I have no idea how Ham doing what he did to his father is related to Avraham. They lived in two different time frames. Uh, but Avraham, uh, uh, his name change, it says it in the verses. God added a letter to his name, uh, and that letter was came from God's name. So in essence, God took the uh, uh, hey from his name. His name is the Yud, hey, and then the Vav and the hey. So he took one of the letters of his name and put it into Avram's name, and he did the same thing with Sarah. So in essence, he sanctified them. They became his, his, his chosen uh, uh, children, and that was the beginning of Am Yisrael. So that was the uh, uh, significance of changing the name. Now, as far as uh, Ham uh, being involved in seeing his father's nakedness, some say it really wasn't Ham, it was actually his son, Canaan, that uh, he, he received the curse. And the reason why is because Canaan raped Noach. Canaan raped Noach. He didn't just see his nakedness. That's just the modesty of the, uh, of the Torah, the way it talks. He actually raped Noach. And some say that he uh, um, cut off his... Uh, his uh, 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 reproductive area because he did not, Ham did not want to have another brother that he would have to share his inheritance with. He already know that he has Shem and, Shem and Yefet to share the inheritance with. He didn't want, uh, and no one was allowed to have children in the uh, Teva for that year. Uh, so after he saw that the only thing that's in the world is what they have, he didn't want to have another brother born now that they're allowed to be intimate again the noah his father is allowed to be intimate again he did not want uh, his father to have another kid that he would have to share his inheritance with him so he ended up uh doing this uh but for that he got cursed for that he got cursed um my cousin lives in a non-jewish area and she is afraid of putting up a mezuzah on a doorpost can she put it on the wall inside the house across from the doorpost uh, if it's on a doorpost, then it's okay. But if it's on a wall, no. She can't put it on the wall. She has to put it in a doorpost. Uh, but why would she be scared of putting, uh, you know, uh, God's name on our doors? It's, it's, that's protection. If anything, she should be afraid that she doesn't have a mezuzah. The mezuzah is what brings her protection. Not the plastic piece, and not the gun, and not the police. The mezuzah is what brings her the protection. She is, uh, should be proud that she's a Jew, and even more so, most people don't even know what it is. Most people think it's uh, some security device. They have no concept. So she shouldn't be afraid for that reason either. And certainly she should leave that area. If she lives in such a bad area that she's afraid to be Jewish, she should leave. Uh, well, a pregnant woman wakes up before dawn to snack up on something, but goes back to sleep. Must she say, Birkat Ashachar again? Uh, if she wakes up uh, and, and she wants to eat something, uh, she has to. She doesn't have to do the, all the bichot hashachar. Usually, it's a uh, if she's just going to be up for moments. She doesn't have to do a bichot hashachar. Just wash her hands. 
uh, and then do the blessing on whatever she's eating. Uh, but if she's waking up for the day, then she needs to do Shachar. The Bikot Shachar is when you wake up for the day. Um, and you only do it once. If you, uh, I'll just add, if you fall asleep for an extended period of time during the day, but you've already done Bikot Shachar, some say that you should say the blessings of the Torah, which is the last three blessings. The blessings of the Torah, again, but uh, not the uh, rest of the Bikot Shachar. That you only do once a day. Becca, thank you for the Jew. Uh, if a non-Jew is trying to convert but is not yet in a formal conversion process, are you allowed to host them for Shabbat, staying the night to observe the entire Shabbat? Um, why are they not? It depends. It depends why they're not in a conversion process. Depends why they're not in a conversion process. Um, generally speaking, it's 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 a uh, Jews need to understand that to take on a convert as a regular guest in your house is a very, very big responsibility and can also be a big problem. Uh, so I generally would not recommend it. I would not recommend it. As much as I love converts and I help converts on a regular basis, uh, it's, it, again, so long as they're not Jewish, uh, it's, it's, it can be problematic, both for you and for them. Uh, both for you and for them. Number one, for you, if they're not really serious about conversion, but they, you know they just act like it, then they could still have some of the, uh, you know, uh, tendencies and, and and misbehaviors of uh, of the way they were brought up. That could be certainly very problematic for a Jew. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, it's it's a bad for them because if they become a regular house guest in a Jewish house. Before they even started the conversion process, they could fall into that trap that I mentioned in my shiur about conversion, uh, the dangerous lives of, of, uh, of conversion, which is they start feeling too Jewish to the point where they start losing the desire to actually convert because they already start feeling and acting and looking like a Jew, which is a uh, spiritual cancer that's very common today uh, in, the, uh, in the conversion world. Many people change their... Uh, clothing and look so much and they uh, befriend a lot of Jews to the point where they forget they're not Jewish and the community forgets that they're not Jewish and many times their conversions either don't take place at all or they just take an obnoxious amount of time more than it's necessary because they don't have that urgency so my recommendation is don't host them until they become Jewish if you want to host them once in a blue moon you can, but not, not as a regular guest every Shabbat. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Also, as a side note for all of you married couple, do not host singles in your house. Like if you have, let's say, a wife and uh, you know two, three kids, and you have, let's say, uh, some young man, uh, uh, needless to say, some young woman that you want to invite to your house, uh, invite them during the week when your husband or, or, or wife is not there. Like if it's a young man, obviously the husband, you know, invite the young man to the house in the middle of the week to have coffee with them or something and talk to him during the week. Don't invite a young man or a young woman that's single to your house by themselves to sleep over. That's just simply stupid. Stupid for marriage, stupid for everything. You know, it's a people, I don't know, for whatever reason, people, you know, become hotels for a lot of young people and then they're surprised that their adultery is running rampant. 
So it's a, uh, you know, if, if, if you have a, even if it's your sister or your brother, generally speaking, single people, you know, it's by themselves should not come to, should not stay over your house. You want to invite them, invite them during the week. They go home after you finish. They don't stay at your house, sleep over. It's not healthy for a marriage. Uh, your, your husband is still a man. Your wife is still a woman. Yetzirah is still the Yetzirah. Yours is Yetzirah. Their Yetzirah. The guests Yetzirah. Everybody has a Yetzirah. Don't tempt anybody to do something stupid. Even if you think it's as far from you as can possibly be. Trust me when I tell you. The stories, I don't want to tell you. Of what I've uh, dealt with with people and the nightmares that they've put onto their lives. So uh, it's a, uh, trust me when I tell you. Single people, they're nice. You want to host them, host them during the week. Uh, you know, one-on-one, go take them for a coffee shop, bring them to the office, whatever you want to do, If uh, as long as it's the same gender and everything, that's not a problem. If you have a whole uh, group of people and they're just, you know, there's, let's say, two, three couples that are coming over and there's one person that's single, that's among everybody else, okay, but uh, this, like, inviting this one single person to a house, doesn't matter if he's Jewish or if he's not Jewish, doesn't even make a difference if he's, uh, you think he's holy. It's not, it's not a good idea. Not a good idea. Uh, unless you have a completely separate house uh, for that person, it's a different story. But even then, it's, uh, you have to be careful. Uh, I never understood why... I uh, didn't just Rivka just tell her husband Yitzchak that their son was a Rasha, or did Yitzchak still not believe her? Um, why didn't she tell him that he's a Rasha? Uh, listen, it's a uh, if you if you live in a house that uh, you know that has you know a bunch of kids in it, you know that parents number one, uh, you know have different relationships with different kids you know some of them they are closer to some of them they're more friendly with some of them they're uh you know more stern with they're more strict with some they're disconnected from and some of them they favor they favor them that's like the baby the baby could be 49 years old but he's still a baby in his mom's eyes and she's still like literally treating him like as if he can't eat for himself and she gives him the food and the plate and, and, and the spoon and the cup and please eat as if he doesn't know how to eat by himself. You know, it's, you know some, some others are like that with their kids. You know, it's, it, it happens. So it's a, uh, sometimes it's the same thing with the father. So the point is that when it comes to parenting and, 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 and uh, it's always easier to uh, be... Uh, someone from the sidelines saying, oh, you should have done this, you should have done that. But when you're in the, uh, the situation, it's very different. You know, it's a, the perspective, how uh, Yitzhak saw him. Certainly Yitzhak knew that his, his son uh, wasn't, uh, uh, you know, the, the most righteous person in the world. Uh, but uh, the magnitude of how wicked he was, I don't think he knew that either. But I do think that Yitzhak kept him closer because he knew that if he wasn't close to him, he would get worse. Uh, he would get worse, and he did get worse later on. But the point is, is that it's a, uh, um, you know, as far as the mother, the mother could sometimes tell her, the father, even today, the mother could tell the father, listen, I can't stand her, I can't stand him, I can't stand this, and the father would just, you know, care less about what the mom says. Why? Because he has his own relationship with that uh, child. And the same thing, vice versa. 
The father wants to punch the kid in the face because of how annoying he is or how he just uh, did something really bad. And to the mom, this kid is an angel. If you lay a finger on one of his hairs, she'll rip you into pieces, turn you into Shabbat food. Yeah, but he just did this, 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 and this. You don't touch my son. He's a part of my body. Yeah, but he just did this, 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 and this. doesn't make a difference. He didn't do it. He didn't mean it. What do you mean? He even wrote me a note that he did it on purpose. No, no, it wasn't him. No, he said it was him. He put his social security number on it. How do you know it's him? You see it? Ah, you didn't see it. See, it's not him. The mom will make 500 million excuses for that son. So parenting is, uh, it looks easier from, uh, from the sidelines. I remember when I was uh, younger, stupider, and uh, without kids, I was the best parent in the world, in my mind. Best parent in the world, in my mind. Oh, I would say to people, how could it be? My kids, when they grow up, they're going to be like soldiers. They're going to see yes, sir, and yes, this, and yes, that. <laughs> in your mind, everybody's the best. In our minds, everybody's the best. Okay, last one. We'll take this. Let me see. I see somebody I haven't asked. Oh, there's only two questions left. Okay, let's do it. All right. Uh, is asking, how can we know we have successfully done a tikkun for a certain thing? Does the desire, does the desire for that specific sin ever go away, or the desire will always exist? Uh, so it depends what. If a person made a big sin, and uh, you know they have a desire for that sin, whether it's uh, whatever it is. Uh, and they start doing a tikkun for it, whether it's tikkun with money, tikkun with prayer, tikkun with learning, tikkun with combination thereof. How do they know if their tshuva is accepted? Number one, it, most of the time they're not going to know because it sometimes takes more effort than you can imagine or different parts of it. But the, the way that's a, a clear indication is when the desire, the desire for that specific sin is, a, uh, is gone. Uh, so, uh, you know, if they have, let's say, for example, they used to, uh, I don't know, eat something non-kosher and they used to love this non-kosher food and, uh, now they stopped doing it. It's hard for them, but they stopped it and they don't even go to the restaurant anymore. And then one day, uh, Hashem sends them a test by, uh, having somebody bring that food to their house and they have all the opportunity in the world to eat it again, but they don't do it. They throw it in the garbage and they pass a test. Within a short period of time after that, you'll see that they have, you know, they won't even have the desire anymore. They'll look at that food, sometimes even at, get to the point where they find it disgusting. So to, to get to that point, that means that they've completed their tikkun on it. But there are certain things that even if you completed your tikkun on that issue, you're still going to have the desire. Uh, so for example, issues of morality, issues of, of, of intimacy, uh, the sexual desire of a person, if they're healthy, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. In fact, the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin says that at the time of the uh, uh, destruction, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the in, in the Bet Hamikdash, the sages prayed to Hashem uh, to remove the uh, the desire that people have for idol worship. There was a lot of idolatry at the time, and they prayed to Hashem, "Please, we we can't handle this idolatry. Please remove it." And the Gemara says that after the Sanhedrin. All prayed was was part of them were uh, were neviim were prophets like Zechariah. Uh, the uh, as they're praying and they did uh, fasting for several days, 
some say they fasted for three days after they saw it's accepted. Some say they fasted for three days before. Either way, after uh, uh, this, uh, this session that the entire Sanhedrin had, uh, a fire in the image of a lion came out of the Kodesh Kodeshim. Now, you would think, oh, that's pretty cool. That's like uh, something really, really good. That's probably like a good angel. Zachariah, the prophet, says, no, no. That was the Yetzirah of idolatry. That's how he looks like. That was the Yetzirah of idolatry. So they figured since the Chachamim said, okay, since it's an auspicious time, it's an auspicious time to, uh, uh, to remove these Yetzirah from the world, let's also move the Yetzirah for uh, immorality. You know, people are committing adultery, they're going with Goyod, Goyim, you know, the Jews in assimilation. Let's pray for that too, to remove the Yetzirah of, a, uh, of uh, immorality. And they wrote a note, I'm sorry, and they started praying, and, and a uh, note came from Shemaim and said the word emet. Emet is, uh, means truth, that's the signature of God. It means that their prayer was accepted, and they have a choice to decide so whether they really want it or not uh of course you need prophecy to understand all this stuff either way the uh Gemara says okay so they uh they want to see how it's going to be without this immorality and uh they waited uh three days and then they went into the market and they couldn't find a single egg a chicken egg why because the immorality is necessary in the world. There's a certain amount of uh, sexual desire that is necessary for the world to function. Now, certainly you're supposed to use things for the right reasons between man and his wife and so on, like we talk about in our series, but there are certain uh, uh, parts of it that are necessary for them to remain animalistic, which is for the animals. But you can't just you remove it for you and for this and it custom-made, because Hashem doesn't give partial blessing doesn't give it's either the whole thing or nothing so after that they realize that they cannot remove the uh the uh the yetzerah the evil inclination of morality and the world came back to what it was and uh unfortunately today we're very very close if not identical to sodom and gomorrah in some parts of the world but these shirim will help people do tshuva and stop uh, acting the way they are uh we're from texas but my mother didn't want to tell us about her father uh, as for me please forgive me as an american for disrespecting your people no you know i don't remember you disrespecting my people and uh, if you did unintentionally your apology is certainly accepted please continue to learn with us please continue to pray with us please continue getting closer to god with us our torah is ethical teachings that are relevant both to Jews, to Gentiles, and to people that want to get, want to get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Thank you very much for learning with me. HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless each and every single one of you during this Rosh Chodesh. We have Rosh Chodesh tonight, Baruch Hashem. HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless each and every single one of you. The ones that uh, donate, may Hashem give you thousandfold more than what you do. When the ones that donate their time, donate their money, donate their resources, donate their ability, their learning, everything that you do, Be'ezat Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu will bless you with more and more. And as uh, Hashem, we'll see each other and learn again together next week. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.
be honest with you, to give this lecture is a nightmare. If it was up to me, I wouldn't do it. There's gonna be some graphic details. Not Midrashim, not Gmarot. We did that already. Where is Genom in Alacha? What did the Hasidim actually say about punishment? Is there suffering? Is there a physical place of fire or snow? We're simply trying to verify that Hashem takes vengeance against the sinners or not. Do you believe that angels, demons exist? We're doing a Ouija board video today. This is by far the largest near-death experience study that has ever been conducted. What happens the moment you die? person needs to know that he's not going to be here forever. Yeah, I went to a place of timelessness. It was me judging myself on what I could have done better. Not the rebuke of some book. This is a rebuke of a Kadosh Baruch Hu when we go up to Shemaim.